our theme for the study through Philippians is the fellowship of the gospel. And, and I just want to take this just right up at the top here. I just want to take a moment and just explain the gospel. Uh, the gospel is the good news. And it's the good news that although we've sinned and because of our sin, we've been separated from God um, and are under the judgment, the penalty for our sin, that even though that is the case, the good news is that God has done something to remedy that. And what did he do? He sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world 2,000 years ago. Jesus lived the perfect life. He lived the life that none of us could live, the life that we should have lived, but we couldn't. He lived the perfect life for us. And then he died to pay the penalty for the sins that we've committed. And God proved that he accepted that as a payment by raising Jesus from the dead. And so 2,000 years ago, Christ was crucified. And three days later, he rose again from the dead, conquering death. And he's the living Lord. And he will today, for any person who calls upon him, he will come into your life. He will forgive your sins. He'll reconcile you to God. He will give you eternal life, which is uh, uh, a a quality of life now that goes on forever with him in his kingdom. And that's all ours by simply receiving him. And so that, that's the gospel. And Philippians is um, Paul's letter to this church in uh, ancient Philippi that uh, he himself was instrumental in starting this church And he has this ongoing fellowship. The word fellowship means partnership or a shared interest in the gospel. And so that's where we are. We come back to Philippians today and we pick up today in the third chapter. And uh, the scripture reading, as you were with us for the scripture reading, Cheryl read um, chapter three, verses one through 12. We're gonna focus in on verses one through nine. But, But just to catch us up, to, to where we are in chapter three, verse one. Uh, Paul had been speaking to them. He'd been speaking to them about the fact that he uh, was uncertain about his own future. You see, Paul wrote this letter from a prison cell in Rome. And it, it wasn't certain that Paul would be released. He wasn't convinced that um, he was going to be set free. He thought that this possibly could be the moment where... Um, he would give his life for the gospel. He might die. So he's writing to them with that background. And he says to them that even if this is the case, I'm paraphrasing, but basically what he says, even if this is the case, if I'm to be poured out uh, like a drink offering upon, uh, upon uh, as a sacrifice upon your service, Paul says, that's okay with me. The picture there, a drink offering, when it was poured out, it would then evaporate. And Paul was basically saying, you know, if this is my life, if, if what I've done has been the extent of my ministry and now uh, I'm going to now evaporate in a sense, I'm going to disappear off the scene, I'm going to go be with the Lord. He said, I rejoice in that. And, and he said to them, I want you to rejoice with me. 
And now as we pick up in chapter three, verse one, he comes back to that same thought after having diverted a little bit to talk about two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, who exemplified this sacrificial life and this partnership with him in the gospel in real time. Uh, now Paul comes back to the issue of um, rejoicing. So, so he said in verse 18 of chapter two, he said, rejoice with me. If, if I live, I live, praise the Lord. If I die, I die, praise the Lord too. Rejoice with me in that. But then he comes back in chapter three, verse one, and he says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. So now he's calling them just to get the, once again, the bigger perspective and to rejoice in the Lord. Now, as I said, Paul is writing this from prison. How is it from a prison cell with the possibility of not even uh, you know, living? Uh, how is it that Paul says rejoice? Well, Paul knew that, that in the Lord, you could have perpetual rejoicing because the Lord is the only unchanging um, reality. Uh, everything else changes. Everything else is in flux. And of course, we're experiencing that right now like we've never experienced it before. In the last couple of weeks, the last three weeks, everything has changed. Life has changed for all of us. And I think back a couple of weeks ago, I was in uh, Florida and I was there in uh, the city of Pensacola and I was, you know, going to a restaurant to have some food. I was with some friends and we went down to the beach and, you know, life was normal. And then everything changed the next day. That is the nature of the world that we're in. It's an ever-changing situation. And sometimes we, we have these moments where we really experience the truth of that. And that is the case right now. But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Lord never changes. And so that's why Paul says rejoice in the Lord. He is the one unchanging reality. So he calls them to rejoice in the Lord. And, and then what he's going to do in these nine verses that we're going to look at is he is going to, first of all, warn them about uh, possible dangers. And then secondly, he's going to talk to them um, about his own personal experience in the past. In a sense, he's going to present his credentials from his previous life in Judaism. And then thirdly, he's going to express his perspective on his past life's achievements uh, and his present life in Christ. So let's pick up in chapter 3, verse 1. And so finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Now, now Paul is concerned about their, their safety and their safety in the sense of their, of their spiritual lives. Um, he knows that there are false teachers that are lurking. He knows that there are people that want to undermine their confidence in the gospel and in the Savior. He knows that there are people out there that want to pull them into uh, something that is not the gospel and get them into religious bondage. And so he's, he's going to warn them about this reality. And so he does that. He says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. Wow, Paul uses strong uh, language here 
as he's describing these false teachers. Now, these false teachers are commonly called Judaizers. And the reason they're called Judaizers is because what they did is they uh, followed Paul around and tried to undermine his message of the gospel by um, imposing Jewish uh, legalistic standards on the believers. And so Paul is, um, he speaks very firmly about these people and he, he calls them actually dogs. He says, beware of dogs. That, that's quite a derogatory statement. So you can see the, the passion that Paul has here. But it's interesting that these, these Judaizers, these people who were going about uh, trying to pull people back into Judaism, um, Paul refers to them as dogs. The, the Jewish, especially among the religious leaders, they commonly referred to Gentiles as dogs. Now, we think of dogs in our current situation, especially here in the United States, uh, we think of dogs as a man's best friend or, or pet. Uh, you know, we have probably mostly wonderful thoughts of dogs. But in the, in the ancient world, in the Middle East, and even to some extent today, um, the, it's a different thing with dogs because you have and had then, you would have these, these roving packs of dogs uh, in the streets that were very, um, well, they, they were dangerous and they could potentially really uh, harm people. And so there wasn't a real fondness for dogs in that, in that culture. And so the, the Jewish leaders would refer to the Gentiles as dogs. But Paul says about these Judaizers, he refers to them as dogs. So uh, when it comes to, to false teaching, we're a little uh, passive today. We, we don't want to be too hard on people who hold uh, different theological positions. And in some cases, that's right. We shouldn't because the theological differences aren't really major. They're minor. But in this case, it was a major difference. And Paul pulls no punches. So he refers to them as dogs. He refers to them as evil workers. And then he refers to them as the mutilation. And so, <coughs> excuse me. The mutilation, he contrasts that with the, the circumcision. So verse three, he says, for we are the circumcision. Now, circumcision was a, another way of referring to Jewishness. And yet, and, and it was a valid thing. Circumcision was valid. It was something that God gave to the nation of Israel, even going back to the time of Abraham. But the way these Judaizers were insisting that this was necessary for salvation Paul called them the mutilation. So what they were doing really in Paul's mind was more of a mutilating than an actual valid um, marking in the body that circumcision was. So Paul says, we are the circumcision. Now, Paul is a Jew, remember. And so Paul is speaking about himself and his fellow Jews who are ministers of the gospel. He says, we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. So the Judaizers put their confidence in the flesh. They, um, they were the circumcision, but they didn't worship God in spirit. They 
uh, believed that their circumcision and other adherences to the law, those were the things that gave them their uh, standing before God. So Paul contrasts himself with them. We are the circumcision, but we worship God in the spirit. We rejoice in Christ Jesus, not in the law or in our keeping of the law. And we put no confidence in the flesh. Now, he then goes on and notice what he says in verse four. He says, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. So now here, Paul is going to, basically what Paul is doing here is he is showing that um, he has um, his experience in Judaism, his understanding of Judaism, his attainments in Judaism so far surpass that of these Judaizers that uh, he's, he's basically assuring the Philippians, you can take my word for it. Uh, they're telling you one thing, I'm telling you something else. But now as he talks about his experience, he, he's basically showing his credentials. It's like uh, you know somebody coming along claiming to be an expert about something who's not really an expert at all. And they're giving you all of their opinions and so forth. And it's, it's the information is incorrect. And then suddenly somebody walks up who really knows the facts, somebody who has the credentials and says, okay, no, wait a second. Let me tell you what, is really the case here. That, that's what Paul's doing. And so what he does is, as I said, he presents his credentials. He lists seven things he formerly believed gave him acceptance with God. So, so Paul was actually one of these guys in the past. Paul believed in the past that, that this was how uh, you were made right with God. It was through adherence to the law and so forth. So he's going to list seven things that he previously uh, trusted in for acceptance with God. <coughs> so he says this. He says, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. First thing, circumcise the eighth day. When Paul says he was circumcised the eighth day, what he's basically saying is, I was born into Judaism. Um, the, according to the law of Moses, uh, a male child was to be circumcised on the eighth day, and that was connecting them with the covenant. So Paul, in other words, he's saying, I didn't uh, come to this later on in life. I was born into this. Circumcised on the eighth day, and then he says, of the stock of Israel, uh, of the stock of Israel or the people of Israel, what he's claiming here is that he's not a proselyte. He's not a convert to Judaism. He's born into the system. He is, uh, by blood, he is an Israelite. And then he says he is of the tribe of Benjamin. And the significance of stating that he's of the tribe of Benjamin um, Two of the tribes were the, the faithful tribes in, in a sense. They were the ones that came back after the various captivities uh, and re-inherited the land, Judah and Benjamin together. And so the Benjamites had uh, a reputation for being a, a faithful tribe and taking their 
uh, Jewishness very seriously. So Paul mentions that he is of the tribe of Benjamin. And then he says he is a Hebrew of the Hebrews. A Hebrew of the Hebrews is um, Paul's way of referring to the fact that he retained, unlike many Jews, he retained Hebrew culture. So Jews were spread all throughout the ancient world. Um, Many of them had what is called Hellenized. They had adopted um, or adapted to the Grecian culture. They were still Jews. They still worshiped the one true God, but they spoke the Greek language and they lived according to Greek customs apart from the idolatrous element of it. Oftentimes they would name their uh, children Uh, Greek names like Philip, for example, one of the apostles, that's a Greek name, uh, not a Hebrew name. And, and, but Paul is saying about himself that he didn't do that. He retained his Hebrew culture and also implied here is that he retained the Hebrew language. So although Paul spoke Greek, he also fluently spoke Hebrew, which was not the case with many Jews. So he's just basically talking about his, um, his position as a Jew. Then he says, concerning the law of Pharisee. Now, this is where it gets, it gets really intense. Not only was he circumcised the eighth day, not only was he a, an actual Israelite, not only was he a Hebrew of the Hebrews, but now he says concerning the law, he was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were an elite group. They were, they were like the religious uh, of the, they were the ultra religious, basically. They were an elite group. There never were more than 6,000 Pharisees. So a, a relatively small number. Um, they were the spiritual elites of Judaism. Uh, Pharisee means the separated ones. And so Paul claims he was not only a Jew who had retained his ancestral religion, but he also had devoted his whole life to its most rigorous observance. No man knew better from personal experience what Jewish tradition or what Jewish religion was at its highest and most demanding. So Again, remember, Paul is saying, let me, let me share with you my credentials. And so here he is. He's, he's all of these things. He is a Pharisee. And then he goes on and he just uh, speaks about the zeal that he had. He had a zeal that caused him to persecute the church. And then he speaks of this righteousness, which is um, in the law. He said he was blameless. So Paul, in all sincerity, is saying that that he himself, prior to his understanding of who Christ was and what the gospel was about, that he was completely confident in his own um, spirituality and his acceptance by God because of his performance. And he says concerning the law, the outward observance of the law, he said he was blameless. You couldn't point to a single thing and say, oh, you broke this or you broke that. He was very meticulous. He, was, he kept the law tediously as would the Pharisees. That was the very nature of what they did. And so to summarize it, he was a loyal Jew 
that had never lost the Hebrew culture. He was not only a religious Jew, he was a member of their strictest and the most self-disciplined sect. He had had in his heart a burning zeal for what he had thought was the cause of God. And he had a record in Judaism which no man could mark a fault. So those are, those are his credentials. So remember, he's warning his friends in Philippi. The, these, beware of these people because they're going to come in and they're going to try to convince you that you need to um, abide by the, the Mosaic covenant. They're going to come in and they're going to seek to undermine um, the, the gospel of Christ. They're going to seek to take your focus off of Christ and to put it onto yourself. You see the teaching, to summarize the teaching of the Judaizers, it was the teaching of these Jews that if a man wished to be saved, he must earn credit in the sight of God by countless deeds of the law. And further, that salvation belonged to the Jews and that no one else, that salvation belonged to the Jews and to no one else, and that before God could have any use for him, a man must be circumcised, as it were, and become a Jew. So that, that was the message. And that was the concern that Paul had, that they might be led astray by this. So that's why he gives his credentials. Now, this isn't the only place Paul does this. Because wherever Paul ministered, it seemed that this, this band would um, in some way show up. They would follow him. Maybe sometime after his departure, they would arrive in town and they would come with the same message. He wrote about this in a number of his epistles to the Galatians, obviously, to the Corinthians as well. And so here to the Philippians, he's, he's warning them and he's, he's wanting them to know right up front that... Uh, if anybody knows about Judaism, he knows about it based on his credentials. Now, he then goes on, and here's where everything switches in verse 7. So he's been describing the, uh, the, the Judaizers and what they're about and what they're doing. Then he describes his own experience in the past. Now in verse 7 he says, but what things were gained to me? So all these things that he just mentioned, those at one time were gained to him. Those were the things that he, um, he put his confidence in. These were the things that he thought uh, gave him acceptance with God. But what does he say? Those things that were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. So what things were gained to me? The things that were gained to me. This brings us to having to ask the question ourselves. What, are gain, are, what would be that to you and to me? What, what would be the things that um, I, would, I would want to hold on to or retain in my life because I felt like these were the things that really in the end would commend me to God or assure for me uh, a, a good future in the afterlife? 
What, what are those things? Because everybody has something that they're trusting in. Uh, the irreligious, the religious, and, and sometimes even those who claim to be Christians and, and perhaps even are Christians, but they're still trusting in something other than Christ. But here's the question. What um, things are gain to us? So everyone has something. The irreligious, I, ironically, the, the irreligious, they themselves, even though they would perhaps even proudly claim no religious affiliation. Uh, this is a, a fairly um, common attitude we see in the culture today. There's actually a move toward um, non-affiliation and um, you know, no, no, no identification with any religion whatsoever. And, and yet those very same people, they would have some sort of a code that they are living by, even though they might not spell it out, they're, they're actually living by it because they're still thinking that, that somehow that there is something that is going to commend them to um, what it, whatever it might be in their mind, a, a better life in the future. And so um, you might think of it like this. So they, they might say, um, regarding themselves, I've done my best to live according to my convictions. I've been sincere. I haven't really hurt anyone. I've tried to do right by people. Uh, I think I'll be okay. Uh, people say this all the time. This is a very common perspective on uh, the future. Because even though people don't believe in God and don't believe in an afterlife, they, they all seem to be preparing in some way, shape, or form for having to uh, have that moment where they present their worthiness or they present what, whatever it is that, that they think is, is their ticket in. So again, it's kind of ironic. I, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in religion. But underneath, I'm actually living this performance thing. And sometimes it's, it's just for people around you. You want them to think a certain thing about you. You, you want them to think that you're a good person. Why, why does anybody even want to um, think that way or, be, or behave that way? It, it kind of just goes back and shows us that, that even though we might deny it outwardly, the reality is everybody knows internally that there is more to life than what we uh, presently see. And everybody knows that once we leave this world, there's, there's something, there's some kind of um, day of reckoning that is awaiting all of us. And so the irreligious, even though they're not religious, they're still preparing. But then you have the religious person. And the religious person would be a little bit different, but again, there would be uh, certain things that they would point to. I might belong uh, to a church. If I'm a religious person, it might be my uh, connection to a church or maybe a synagogue or a mosque or a temple. I might uh, have confidence in the fact that I, I, I give to religious causes or I've been uh, charitable or uh, I pray, I read from a holy book, I do my best to be a good person. 
Uh, any of those things might be the things that, that people, as Paul had done, thought were gain. They were gain in the sense that these are the things that I'm trusting in that are going to gain me the position, the desirable position in the future. And as I mentioned, sometimes even those who identify as Christians will speak like this. You don't have to, to search far to find a, a, a person who is in a church who, who thinks that their faithful attendance to the church is what um, commends them to God. Or maybe it's the fact that they have um, read their Bible every day. Or maybe they've uh, committed to memory large portions of scripture. Or maybe they have a faithful prayer time. Maybe they pray three times a day. Or, or maybe it's something that they haven't done. That they haven't um, been involved in certain things. They've never um, you know, uh, listened to a certain type of music or, or they, they've not you know, watched something on the screen or you know, something like that. These are, these are common things that people are trusting in. It reminds me of the story found in Luke 18 that Jesus tells of the Pharisee and the tax collector. So Jesus described this situation where a Pharisee and a tax collector, they go into uh, the temple to worship. And as they go to pray, the Pharisee, Jesus said, the Pharisee was praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. Wow. <laughs> Jesus hit the nail on the head. Now, this is the Pharisee. And he is, he's trusting completely in himself, in his, in his goodness, in his good deeds. And then Jesus contrasts him with the tax collector. And, and, but even the Pharisee says, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. So in the Pharisee's mind, this person is, is hopeless. I mean, they're a tax collector. But Jesus says the tax collector, he doesn't even uh, count himself worthy to really pray. He just beat on his breast, it said, and that was a, a sign of um, humbling yourself. And he said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that's, that's really, that is such a picture of what Paul is even describing about himself. This is where he's gone from. He went from having the attitude of a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee, but he went from having that exact same kind of attitude that Jesus described to then having the attitude of the tax collector, which he never would have done on his own. That was only by uh, a work of God's spirit that he could come to the place of saying, rather than, God, here are all of my good things that I've done, so of course uh, I'm going to be accepted by you, he would come to that place of saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so Paul goes on, and he says here, um, yet indeed, verse 8, I also count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. 
Wow, this is where Paul has gone. The things that he once had total confidence in, he says, now I count them as rubbish. Another translation reads garbage. Another translation, actually the King James Version says dung. And dung is an old English word for excrement. And so Paul is basically saying that the things that he used to think were valuable in regard to his standing before God, the things that he used to put his confidence in, he says he cast them away like casting out the rubbish in order that he would do what? That I might gain Christ and be found in him. And here's something that every single person needs to know. In order to gain Christ, one must renounce all human effort to save oneself. This is how you become a Christian. This is how you attain the favor of God. You cannot attain the favor of God until you renounce all human effort to save yourself. As long as you think you can save yourself, you will be trusting in the kinds of things that Paul described here, which he says, I now count them as rubbish. They're worthless. They're of no value in regard to this. You see, one must despair of any hope of ever being saved except through the finished work of Christ alone. And this is the prerequisite to salvation in a sense. This is, this is the, the, the doorway to salvation. It's the, the renouncing of my ability to save myself. And the recognition that I can't do that. And that's what Paul is describing here when he says that I count all things loss. I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. And now listen to verse nine and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness, which is from God by faith. Now in this ninth verse, we come back to where we started. We come back to the gospel. Because here, as Paul is, remember, he's writing to warn his friends in Philippi about the danger of these false teachers. But in doing so, he restates the gospel. And that's what he does right here in verse nine. Remember, the gospel is God's good news that although we can't save ourselves, there is a way to be saved. And that way is through the Savior himself. And so look what he says. He says that I may gain Christ and be found in him. That's what salvation is. Salvation is being in Christ. How do I get to being in Christ? Well, I get to being in Christ by recognizing I can't save myself and asking him to save me. And then I am put positionally in Christ. God takes me out of my sin and he takes me out of my uh, former relationship with Adam. This goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. And he puts me in Christ. I am now in Christ. And as he says here, that I may be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law. See, if you're in Christ, then your own righteousness is of no account. It, it, it doesn't mean anything. And if you're not in Christ and you're trying to attain favor with God through your own righteousness, 
then it's a hopeless cause. Now, when Paul says here, when he uses this uh, word righteousness, he's talking about righteousness in the sense of, of the, the thing God requires, the righteousness that God uh, expects every one of us to have, but because we can't attain it ourselves, it's a righteousness that God gives to us. And that's what he then goes on to say. And so it's not a righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. The righteousness which is from God. So God basically says, here's my standard of righteousness. Here it is. And none of you can attain it. So what I'm going to do is for those of you that admit and confess that you can't attain it, I'm going to give it to you as a gift. So when you humble yourself and you ask me to give you the righteousness that I require that you need, uh, I am going to give that to you and I'm going to give it to you through your faith in my son, Jesus Christ. And so again, that's the gospel. We put our faith in God's son, Jesus Christ, and the righteousness that we could never attain, the righteousness that Jesus possesses alone, he then gives that to us. It's a gift. It's imparted to us. It's put on our account. And so as we close today, I want to first of all encourage those of you who are in Christ to rest in him and to just thank God and worship and praise God for this wonderful gift of salvation that he's given to us. And know that even in this time of, of upheaval and, and just uncertainty, know that you're safe and you're secure in Christ. You're accepted by God. It's not your righteousness, but it's the righteousness of God that is yours through faith. And, and you just trust in that. You rest in that. But also, I want to speak to any that might be uh, tuning in today. And maybe you don't have this righteousness. Maybe you're still somewhere. Maybe, maybe you're even a, a, a non-religious person. But you know the truth that underneath the surface, you're still planning and working. And, and you know, here and there, you're, you're doing things thinking, okay, I'm, I'm gonna, I want the, the good to outweigh the bad in the end. Um, that's just an indicator that this is the way things really are. There, there is a judgment. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're a religious person. Maybe you've been working hard. Maybe you've been, uh, maybe even in this crisis, you've decided I'm going to go back to church. I'm going to go to my place of worship, whatever it might be. I, I'm going to get myself right with God. I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to be nicer to people. I'm going to help out. I'm not going to hoard all of these kinds of things because you're thinking, well, you know, what, what's going to happen next for me? What if I die? Well, again, whether you're non-religious or religious or even if you attend a church, none of those things are the way to have assurance of salvation. There's only one way, and that's by putting your personal faith in Christ, by admitting that you can't save yourself by renouncing all of your efforts, just like Paul did, I count them as rubbish. You might look at all of those things that you've been thinking in your mind, like these are the things that are gonna 
you know, when that final day comes, these are the things that are going to get me access into that better place. Um, Paul said, no, I count them as loss. I, I, I count them as rubbish and, and we must do that too. And if you are ready to do that, if you're ready to put your faith in Christ alone, then I want you to just say this prayer with me. It's a simple prayer. If you mean it sincerely from your heart, God will take you up on it and he will come and he will give you this gift of salvation. So say this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, I confess that I am a sinner and I, I recognize that there is I recognize now that there is nothing I can do to save myself. I, I realize now that all of my efforts are as rubbish in the end. And I renounce them. And I ask you to have mercy upon me, a sinner. And I ask you to save me and to give me that gift of righteousness that comes through faith in Christ Lord Jesus, I put my faith in you today. I call upon you and ask you to be my Savior and my Lord. And I receive now your gift of salvation, and I thank you. And Lord, I pray for anyone that said that prayer, that you would now establish and confirm them in this new life that they have in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.